The failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, the talk of a potential golden generation, this entire four plus year project of remaking the US men's national team, all of it has led us here to the brink of the World Cup in Qatar. And to one big question, how far should the U.S. be expected to advance? Head coach Greg Berhalter said when he first took over the program in January 2019 that he was on a mission to change the way the world viewed American soccer. The only way to really do that is to make a good run at the World Cup. We can talk about the ancillary elements, we can discuss pathways and debate the systems of play, but the only thing that will meaningfully move the needle in a positive direction for the U.S. at home and abroad is making a good run in Qatar. When the U.S. kicks off the World Cup with a Group B match on November 21st against Wales, nothing else will matter. As midfielder Weston McKenney told us, at that point, it won't be about potential, it won't be about 2026. The only thing that will be important is the impression that the U.S. can make on the world over their next three games. For us, it's it's right now. For us, it's to be able to leave our mark and, and you know work towards our goal, you know, the way of changing the way the world views American soccer. And, and I think that's, that time is now to be able to do that. I'm Sam Stasekul. And I'm Paul Tenorio. And this is episode five, the final episode of From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. Before we get into the nitty-gritty on the individual matchups against Wales, England, and Iran, it's important to provide some context. History shows that we should approach this team and the expectations around it with caution. They are incredibly young, and incredibly young teams typically don't make a ton of noise at World Cups. The U.S. was by far the youngest team to qualify for this World Cup. By average age, they'll likely be the youngest team in Qatar by a huge margin, perhaps as high as two years. The average age of players that appeared in the U.S.'s 14 qualifying matches in 2021 and 2022 was just 24.07. The next youngest team to qualify for Qatar was Ecuador, whose average age of all players used during their 18 qualifying matches came in at 25.81. The U.S.'s starting 11s were even younger. The average age of the lineups used in qualifying was 23.82. The other 31 teams that qualified for the World's Cup averaged a starting 11 age of 27.5 during their qualifying campaigns. That's nearly four years older than the ones that were used by the U.S. World Cup history shows that there is somewhat of a ceiling on young teams. Only one team in the past five World Cups has ever gone as far as the semifinal with an average age younger than 25.9. That was the 2010 German team that reached the semis. Many of those German players returned to the team at the 2014 World Cup. And with those four years of extra seasoning, they went on to win that tournament. For some, these numbers don't matter. There's an old cliche in soccer about age. If you're good enough, you're old enough. It seems that USMNT legend Demarcus Beasley, who played in the first of his four World Cups at age 20 in 2002, subscribes to that idea. I don't care how old they are. I don't care that obviously all of them will be playing for the World Cup for the first time. I have expectations for them to, to do well. I, I think they will. I 100% think they will get out of the group. I think they will silence a lot of critics. 
But still, that lack of experience in the team can make a big impact, even just in fighting through difficult moments during games. It's one thing for a team to have a couple of young, inexperienced players in a group full of savvy veterans. The older guys can provide stability, know-how, and understanding to help the youngsters along. But it's an entirely different animal to have a whole team full of young players who have never before played in the World Cup. Some of the Americans that will be in Qatar have been under the brightest lights imaginable on the club level. Huge Champions League matches, Barcelona-Real Madrid Clasicos, massive rivalry games in the Premier League, but none of the American biggest players have ever before been to a World Cup. So when the nerves hit and when stuff hits the fan in Qatar, and at one point or another, it almost certainly will, there will likely only be one player out of 26 on the roster that the Americans can look to with World Cup experience. That's DeAndre Yedlin, who made the U.S. team in 2014 as a 20-year-old. And that matters. Clint Dempsey told our colleague Chris Camrani about how he leaned on veterans in his first World Cup in 2006, when he was 23. You had guys in there that, you know, that have done it, that, you know, you look to the side and you see them, them being confident gives you confidence, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, you got to make your own confidence as well. So when you get on the field, no one's holding your hand. You got to go out there and make, make stuff happen, bro. So I knew when I got my chance, man, I was going to go out there and leave everything I had on the field. I was going to try to make something happen, try to get some shots off, take people on. And I wasn't going to look back at a World Cup and say, damn, I wish I'd have done more. So I think these guys have the ability to go out there and do the same thing. But it is tough for them probably when they look to the left and right and looking around the room, they're the guys that are having to bring the guy, bring the team up as opposed to having some older guys that are like, you can see that they're confident and you're like, all right, cool, we got this, you know? We've been here before. When none of those guys have been in the World Cup, they don't know what it's going to be like. Doesn't mean that they're not going to do well, but when push comes to shove and you're kind of at halftime and looking around and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it does make a difference to have guys that have been in the trenches and know what it's like to be in those tournaments and what they need to do to grind out results. Considering the inexperience of this group of players and the history around young teams at the World Cup, perhaps the best way to frame this discussion is what would constitute a success for the U.S. Most agree that the expectation is to advance out of a group that includes Wales, England, and Iran. For Beasley, that's the bare minimum. Get out of the group. 100%. You know, I've heard people talk about, oh, you know, this is a uh, like a dry run for 2026. No, they need to perform. Every player we spoke to agreed. All of them echoed the thought that getting out of the group was considered a must. Here's U.S. center back Walker Zimmerman, who is expected to start in Qatar, talking about that baseline. Bar none, it's, you know, we're getting out of the group. That's, that's our expectation as a team. And we know, looking back at uh, when we get into these tournaments like Gold Cup, Nations League, and we get into these do or die games, we've done very well. And we have a belief in us that, hey, when, when our back's up against the wall and we have to win a game or else we're done, we've, we've been successful. And so let's channel that mentality and go out and face whoever we can, you know, and take it one game at a time and, and go as far as we can. I don't think there's like a set, you know, oh, if we get to the quarterfinal or whatever it is, that it's going to be successful because we're all competitors. And once we get to that game, we're like, no, we expect to win this game. I don't care who we're playing. We expect to win this game. And so that's why I say, you know, for us, for sure, having to get out of the group uh, is the expectation because we know that once we get into those knockout stages, we're going to have a chance to go out and beat anyone in the world. For U.S. coach Greg Berhalter, the key is about how the team approaches the tournament. They learned lessons during qualifying, not to look too far ahead or to underestimate the challenge, 
And during those qualifying months, the idea morphed into a game-by-game, window-by-window mentality. In Qatar, they'll try something similar. The US will try to compartmentalize the tournament into two stages. It's just breaking it up into two tournaments, right? You have the, the group stage and you have the knockout stage and you, you have to finish in the top two in the group to earn the right to play in the knockout stage. And I think it's, you know, fair expectation. I think it's a nice challenge to, to say to this group, okay, you know, you should get out of the group. You know, it's a difficult group, right? England, Wales, Iran, um, Wales will be a very difficult game. High level players, very compact, don't give much up. England, you know, go, probably one of the close to one of the favorites of the World Cup, and then Iran's going to be, a, you know, physical, difficult opponent. But I think we can get out of the group, and then from there, to me, it's just about how do you play in these next games, right? How do you play a really good game to advance to the, to the next round, and how do you keep doing that? I, well, it doesn't even matter. Like it's just it's one game at a time. You know, I think that's the way you look at it. You don't even look at it as a quarterfinal or semi, it's just one game. How do you get, how do you advance? When we come back after this word from our sponsors, we'll break down that first tournament for the U.S., the group stage, game by game. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The U.S. will arrive in Qatar with a relatively difficult assignment. They open the tournament against Wales on November 21st, then face England on Black Friday, November 25th, and finish up the group against Iran on November 29th. It is the only group in the World Cup with all four teams ranked inside the top 20 in the FIFA World Rankings. England is the favorite to win the group and, according to most betting sites, Wales is considered a slightly better bet to advance than the U.S. The U.S. opens with Wales, Sam, so let's start there with the challenge they face in their opening game. So this is the first World Cup for Wales in several generations. They haven't qualified for the tournament since 1958. They got here in pretty dramatic, uh, heart-wrenching fashion. It was a really high-profile game all over the world. They were in a playoff against Ukraine. It was Ukraine's second match back since the invasion from Russia, and Wales ended up beating them 1-0, hanging on kind of for dear life, packing it in, defending in two very low banks of four, and relying on a huge performance from their goalkeeper to hang on and advance to Qatar. They're ranked 19th by FIFA, the US is 16th. They are winless, however, in their last five games since that win against Ukraine. They've lost twice to the Netherlands, they've lost to Poland, they've lost to Belgium, and they've drawn against Belgium. A very good result. Belgium's a very talented team. The squad value, according to Transfer Market, which offers a decent approximation of the overall level of talent on a team, is 143.9 million. 
Gareth Bale is easily the highest profile player on the squad, but there's talent elsewhere too. Daniel James, a winger for Fulham. Nico Williams, a right back for Nottingham. Brennan Johnson, a forward for Nottingham, a young forward with a lot of promise, are among the players who will likely make a big impact for Wales and Qatar. Paul, how do you see this game playing out? Well, honestly, Sam, I thought that it was the worst possible scenario for the U.S. when Wales beat Ukraine. And that's a funny thing to say, because a lot of people, myself included, believe that Ukraine was probably the better team, the more skillful team, certainly. But I think the way Wales approaches most games is the type of style that the U.S. doesn't really thrive when they play against it, which is a team that is very organized defensively that typically sits in a lower block and then looks to get out and beat you in transition on the counters. And we've seen this U.S. team through CONCACAF qualifying struggle to break down very organized defensive teams. And I think what you're going to see in this game is a very, very tight 0-0, one game. And I think whatever happens in this game will probably be a good indicator of which way this tournament is going to go for the U.S. I think it's going to be a one-goal game. And if that one goal comes from Wales late in a game on a counter or on a set piece and Gareth Bale rises up and heads it home and they beat the U.S. 1-0, that's the end of the tournament. The U.S. gets that goal and wins 1-0, or even if they draw 0-0, I think the U.S. is in a decent place going forward. You know, this Wales team is dangerous. And and Sam, I think it's worth looking back. This U.S. team played against Wales at the end of 2020. It was one of the only games where the U.S. was able to play in Europe with European-based players in that COVID-filled year. That game finished 0-0. And if you look back at that game, I think you have a pretty good idea of what we're going to see. The U.S. dominated possession. They had more than 60%. They passed the ball more often than Wales, and they had a few more shots, but they weren't that much more dangerous than Wales. It it played out the way Wales wanted it to, and I I think we could end up seeing a similar dynamic in Qatar. Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to be cagey. It's going to be tight. Chances are going to be at a premium, and the U.S. will have more of the ball. The question will be what they can do with it. And, And Paul, that is very much an open question. We'll talk more about that later. On Black Friday, game number two for the US in Group B. This one is the one that will draw the massive television audience here in the States. It's the one that will attract the most attention, and for good reason. It's against England. The US has, of course, played England at a previous World Cup, a recent World Cup. In 2010, they drew 1-1 in South Africa in the group stage. A lot has changed for both teams since then. England is coming off of a summer in which they made it to the final of the European Championships, lost to Italy in that match. They are ranked fifth in the world by FIFA, a really talented, really star-studded squad that is in a very bad moment entering the World Cup. They are winless in their last six games, dating back to June, three losses and three draws in that run. They lost twice to Hungary, which was bizarre. Uh, Hungary actually wasted them in one of those matches, absolutely crushed them. Lost to Italy and drew twice with Germany and once against Italy. Harry Kane, Phil Foden, Jude Bellingham, Mason Mount, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish, just some of the stars that are gonna be on this team. Uh, Although they're dealing with some injury concerns of their own, particularly in the back, where Reese James and Kyle Walker, two very important players for them, might be out for the tournament with injuries. Yeah, you know what's interesting to me about this game, Sam? There's going to be so many different ways that we can measure up with this game. First of all, England is definitely considered one of the favorites in the tournament. 
So how the U.S. plays against them, I think, will be a measuring stick for where this team ranks, right, against world powers. But I look back all the way to 2018. It was the one of the final games of the Dave Sarikin interim era. And it's funny to look at that game. It was a 3 nothing England win, by the way, a send-off match for Wayne Rooney, about how far this team has come since what happened in Cuba, since this young team started to transition. And it's kind of funny looking at that lineup of that game back in 2018. It had players on the field that started like Bobby Wood, Julian Green, Will Trapp, Jorge Villafania, Matt Miazga, Brad Guzan. Names that you have not heard on this podcast until right now. (laughs) Right. None of them are going to be anywhere close to a World Cup roster. But also on the field that day was Tim Weah, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, DeAndre Yedlin, Tyler Adams came off the bench. Kellen Acosta came off the bench. So there is some parallel there, or at least there is a kind of a measuring stick of how far this team has come based one on how much the lineup has changed. But two, I think the expectation certainly is not to lose three nothing against this talented England team at the World Cup. But it will be a really interesting game because England is not going to sit back in this game. They are going to look at this as a game they should win. They're going to attack the U.S. And it's going to be about how the Americans respond. And Sam, I wonder your opinion on this. There's going to be a high level of familiarity between these two teams. I mean, Christian Pulisic has played in England for several years now. He's teammates with Mason Mount and others on this England team. Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams play in England. Anthony Robinson is from England and plays in England. Eunice Musa came up with Arsenal and was a captain of the England U18 team. He was teammates with Saka on those teams. Matt Turner is a goalkeeper for Arsenal and his teammates with some of the players he'll be lined up against. Do you think that familiarity helps the U.S., at least when it comes to, quote unquote, intimidation factor? I don't think they'll be intimidated, but I don't think they would have been intimidated even if that familiarity didn't exist, to be honest with you. For me, this game is so interesting because of the cultural elements of play. England is the country that invented the sport. They enter every World Cup, regardless of how good their actual team is, singing, it's coming home, we're going to win. They haven't won since 1966. Paul, you know, both of us grew up playing the game in the States. How many times did you go to a soccer camp when you were a little kid in the summer and all the coaches were English and had English accents? There's this sense, historically anyway, in American soccer that if you have that British accent, then automatically you know more about the game than somebody from our side of the Atlantic. There's going to be a chip on the shoulder for the U.S. entering this game, and I think that'll be positive. I think on the opposite side, England will have a little bit extra pressure. They can't go out and lose to the Americans at the World Cup. That would be the height of embarrassment for them. So that part of it is going to be really interesting just to see how the psychology of it plays out. On the field, England is more talented. There's zero doubt about that. It is factual. If they play their best game, they will win, barring some miracle in goal for the U.S. and in front of goal on the other side of the field. But weird things happen in one-off matches. England is playing poorly right now. They're kind of in shambles. You know, I think it's worth noting that the the bragging rights at the World Cup in this rivalry, you know, right now reside with the U.S. They've never lost to England at the World Cup. They've played them twice. The last was a draw in 2010. Clint Dempsey's goal, Rob Green slipped through his hands. To your point of anything can happen, I think that goal is a good example. But certainly, you know, what's interesting for me is the England game is the most interesting from like if you're talking to neutrals and an audience perspective, USA, England, all the things we just talked about, but probably the least consequential in terms of expected results. Like you kind of go into this thinking, okay, if you get a draw, that's solid. If you get a win, that's huge. And if you get a loss, 
Well, you got to take care of business in the other two games. You almost write off the result. You expect the loss when you're projecting it out. People like us, anyway. The team won't be thinking like that. But Paul, Greg Berhalter talks a lot about changing the perception of American soccer around the world. You could beat England and lose the other two games, and you would have a positive change in perception (laughs) for American soccer (laughs) around the world and at home. Um, So this one, from that perspective... It doesn't get much bigger. And we'll get into this a little bit later when we start talking about the U.S. squad. But there is one thing that I believe pretty strongly about this team, and that is that they have a lot of players in the group that play their best games in big matches, that understand the moment. As they say in soccer, sometimes they can smell it. They can smell the moment and they kind of up their game. So I'm very interested to see what happens with such an enormous stage against England on Black Friday at the World Cup. The U.S. finishes off the group against Iran. It's an interesting opponent, probably the one that most people, including even ourselves, know the least about. Iran finished atop their Asian qualification. They are ranked 20th in the FIFA rankings. This is not an easy opponent. It is a team that is a difficult team to play against. They are 1-1-1 in their last three games dating back to June, but they have some solid results. They lost 2-1 to Algeria, but they beat Uruguay 1-0, and they drew Senegal 1-1, both teams that are going to be playing in the World Cup. They have some talented players. Mehdi Taremi is a forward at Porto. He's got 54 goals in his previous three seasons in Portugal leading into this year. Sardar Azmoun, he may miss the World Cup with a calf injury suffered a couple weeks ago at Bayer Leverkusen. That would be a huge loss for Iran. He has 41 goals and 65 caps for them. And then there's Ali Reza Jahanbash. He's a winger with Feyenoord and he makes up the third prong in that attack. This is a team that is able to get after you. They're able to really attack you. I think it again, like Wales, will be a team that probably plays more organized defensively and looks to break out in transition. But as we mentioned before, that is a style of soccer where the U.S. struggles. When they're asked to break teams down, they tend to have fewer answers than when they get into those back and forth games like we saw against Mexico in the Gold Cup final and in the Nations League final. Iran is an interesting opponent that I think it could end up being the do or die game as most group stage third games end up being maybe not the ideal opponent for that type of matchup. Yeah, probably not. I I would echo everything you just said. Dangerous players up top, organized defensively, and with a manager in Carlos Queiroz, who is familiar with the U.S. He actually used to manage an MLS once upon a time, way back in the day with the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, who are now, of course, the New York Red Bulls. He recently took over the team. It was a very late coaching change, but he managed the squad for eight years, from 2011 through 2019. He then left to go coach Colombia. He got fired from that job when they got up to a poor start in qualifying. Took over Egypt. He took them to the final of the African Cup of Nations earlier in 2022. And Paul, that team with Mohamed Salah, one of the best players in the entire world, the Liverpool star, they sat really deep and defended and looked to counter. And that's sort of the approach that I expect from Iran in this match. A lot will depend on how the first two games go for the individual teams and what they need in terms of a result to get out of the group. Well, what we know, Sam, based on this group is that if the U.S. team is going to advance, it's going to have to play close to its best soccer. And in September, in their final tune-up matches ahead of Qatar, the U.S. was nowhere near that standard. They were missing some important players, but they looked absolutely terrible in a 2-0 loss to Japan in Dusseldorf, Germany on September 23rd. 
And they were worse in just about every single way to Japan in that game. They failed to register a single shot on goal. And while they looked better against Saudi Arabia and Mercia Spain a few days later, that was an extremely low bar to clear after the way the Japan game went. They still weren't good in that game. They struggled to create chances and ended up drawing 0-0 against a team in Saudi Arabia that figures to be among the worst at the World Cup. Opinions, of course, vary on how important those performances will be come Qatar. Fans, media members, people on the outside have understandably been pessimistic about what they mean for the U.S.'s chances at the World Cup. But there's still a belief within the team, and with some former players, that the September struggles won't matter in November. I don't care about the friendlies. Yes, did they play very poorly? Of course. DeMarcus Beasley was insistent during interviews for this podcast that the friendlies in September simply can't be predictive of what a team will look like at a World Cup two months later. There's just too big of a gap in the stakes between playing in front of a few hundred people in a 30,000 capacity stadium on the southern coast of Spain and a packed house in Qatar with the entire world watching on November 21st against Wales. I don't think it matters, to be honest. Like these friendlies didn't, you know, they don't mean anything. You know, you look at you look at some of the, the, the best countries that are favorites to win the World Cup. None of them playing well. England, Germany, Spain, France. Look at France's team. They're not playing well either. So these friendly games, and I call them, well, everyone calls them glorified friendlies that, you know, they're making up in, in Europe, the Nations League, and now, you know, with this, it doesn't mean anything. When the World Cup comes, it's, it's, it's a different ball game. But there are real legitimate issues facing this U.S. team. They are 1-1-3 in their last five games dating back to June. A win over Granada, draws with Uruguay, El Salvador, and Saudi Arabia, and that loss to Japan. They have zero goals against the three World Cup opponents, Uruguay, Saudi Arabia, and Japan. They've been shut out in six of their last seven matches against World Cup opponents dating back to January. And there are injuries and big question marks around this team too. Anthony Robinson recently said that he's playing on one ankle for Fulham right now. Gio Reyna, of course, has been injured through huge portions of his career and is only just working back into substitute minutes at Dortmund. Center back Chris Richards, who was supposed to play a big role in the back line for the U.S., hasn't played since August 27th for Crystal Palace. And Tim Weah, a very important winger for the U.S., got his first 42 minutes of the season in early October. And that doesn't even begin to mention the dilemma with Major League Soccer players. Because of the way the World Cup falls in November, many MLS players will go several weeks between games. Several that are expected to feature for the U.S. team are already out of the playoffs. Jordan Morris, Christian Roldan, Walker Zimmerman, Aaron Long, and DeAndre Yedlin all stopped playing before the conference semifinals in mid-October. Paul, let's break down the different positions, the different groups of players on this team. In goal, Matt Turner is not getting a ton of time at Arsenal, but he's been doing pretty well when he's been playing in the Europa League contests that he's getting starts in. It's sort of unclear what the picture is behind him. Zach Steffen has been playing at Middlesbrough, but he had a difficult start to the season and hasn't been in the last two camps for the U.S. Greg Berhalter, of course, preferred him to Turner during qualifying. So we'll see how that shakes out. Do you think Turner is the starter for Qatar? I think so. And and like you said, it's it's a big change because during qualifying, Zach Steffen, who played for Burhalter in Columbus, definitely seemed to be the number one. He stepped back into the lineup even when Matt Turner was playing well when he came back from injury. 
And there was somewhat of a back and forth between the two goalkeepers, but there was always kind of this underlying feeling that Stefan was the number one. And I don't think that feeling exists anymore. Zach Stefan's club situation is a little bit less settled. He moved from Manchester City, where he was the backup to be the starter at Middlesbrough and had kind of a rough go there for a little bit. He's also had injury issues and that's caused him to miss some camps. He missed the June window in the summer due to family reasons. And that gave Matt Turner a chance to really grab the job. And I do think he'll go into Qatar as the starter. He certainly should. We'll see how it goes. I think Burhalter would make a lot of people pretty upset if he didn't start Turner. Further up the field, there's a big dilemma at center back. Big, big, big dilemma. It's not a position of strength for the U.S. Walker Zimmerman performed really well there throughout the course of qualifying. I think it's fair to assume that he's a lockdown starter for Qatar, but who will pair him is very much an open question. Aaron Long and Mark McKenzie looked pretty shaky during the minutes they got alongside of him in September. Cameron Carter-Vickers, who plays at Celtic in Scotland, he'll likely get a look, but he had to pull out of the September camp due to injuries. Eric Palmer-Brown didn't get a chance at September, but he was on the team. I think it's a long shot that he would make the roster. We talked about Chris Richards. If he's healthy and if he's playing, I think he's the starter, but he's neither of those things as we sit here recording. And then you have Tim Ream and John Brooks, two veteran options who have by far the most experience against top-tier opponents of the kind that the U.S. will face at the World Cup. But both guys who have not been called up by the U.S. team in over a year now. Paul, how do you see this position playing out? And who do you think starts next to Zimmerman? Well, I think it's important to think about the context of why we're finding ourselves here when it comes to the center back position. Miles Robinson tore his Achilles, ruptured his Achilles when he was playing with Atlanta United, and that pretty much started to upend the depth chart. Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman had become the favored partnership in the U.S. center back position, and that was already a spot that had been up and down until those two started to play well together. And you take that and you add in Chris Richards' injuries and the fact that he hasn't been able to play consistently, and all of a sudden, we're now talking about the fourth and fifth and sixth guys on the depth chart as the second and third and fourth guys on the depth chart, players who are actually going to start or play meaningful minutes. And really, realistically, there aren't a lot of great options. Nobody in this depth chart is going to make you feel great. You're going to have to sacrifice some level of weaknesses to try to find the right strength within the group. And I don't know that there's a right answer. I think Tim Ream certainly has been playing well in the Premier League and deserves warrants a look, even though he hasn't been a part of the team since September in that first window of qualifying. But Greg Berhalter has preferred team chemistry over anything else. And so I think that gives the edge to players like Aaron Long and Mark McKenzie and even Cameron Carter Vickers, who have been involved with this group in the last few months. For sure, Walker Zimmerman will be the starter. I agree with that. And ultimately, I think the starter in that first game in Qatar will come down to one thing Does Chris Richards get on the field? with enough time to get fit. I don't have confidence that's going to happen. And so I think that we'll likely see, I don't know, I'm going to roll the dice here and say Cameron Carter Vickers is going to start that first game of Qatar. And that's coming out of nowhere with that prediction, Sam. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to bother making a prediction. It's too early in the, in the game for us to do that right now. But regardless of who's there, this is going to be a potential trouble spot for the U.S. in a position that a lot of people are going to be watching very closely as to how they can hold up against three teams with some very talented attacking players. Paul, in midfields, the starting trio seems to be pretty clear. Tyler Adams is the defensive midfielder, Eunice Musa, and Weston McKenney in front of him. The main question is going to be how Berhalter deploys them, whether or not he plays Adams alongside of Musa, or whether or not Musa and McKenney play in front of Adams. We don't need to dive too, too deep into the specifics of those decisions, but broadly speaking, the midfielders are very, very athletic, 
very good at pressing, very good at disrupting the opponent, but limited in terms of their ability and possession. Yeah, I think really when we talk about the midfield position, it can be pretty quick in saying that Yunus Musa is vital to this trio, his ability to carry the ball, to help the U.S. start the attack. And I think that Yunus Musa is going to be the breakout player for the U.S. at the World Cup. In working on this podcast and in reporting around this team, when you ask people who are around the team or who are in the team who they think will stand out in the tournament, it was a 100% return rate, for me at least, that Yunus Musa was that guy. So when we talk about the U.S. in the midfield, it's probably the most settled spot, assuming all three are healthy. And also, I think maybe the most exciting in terms of what Yunus Musa is capable of and the fact that he's not really a, a big name, quote unquote, for the casual audience who's going to know Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna. So that for sure is a spot to keep an eye on. Sam, when we move up to the winger position, it's really an important one for the U.S., Because of questions at the number nine, and we're going to get to that in a second, the U.S. needs a high level of production from the wings, and they have big name stars at the position. Christian Pulisic is going to start on the left wing. Gio Reyna or Tim Weah is going to start on the right wing, maybe even Brendan Aronson. These are big name players who are capable of producing, and it's probably a little bit of a lineup headache for Greg Berhalter, but in a good way. Ultimately, what do you think the U.S. needs out of these wingers, and and what's the best way to line them up to maximize the potential of this team? Well, a lot depends on Gio Reyna and his health. For the U.S., in both of the games in September, he had to come off early in the 30th minute in the match in Saudi Arabia because of a little bit of a tweak to his hamstring. Will Berhalter feel confident enough to start him at a World Cup, understanding that it might mean he has to make an early sub? Or will he instead maybe try and use him off the bench as a super sub, a guy that can come in and really impact a game late on? My money is on the latter there. And that would mean that Pulisic would be starting on the left. And I think probably Wea, at least at the start of the tournament on the right. It just comes down to getting Pulisic the ball in good positions. Him staying high, him staying wide, and him being able to find the space where he can get on the ball, facing goal, run at defenders, where he can make the most positive impact. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. And the U.S. is going to need him to make a positive impact because at the number nine position, there is no real game-changing player. And in fact, there's a crowd of strikers who are scoring goals with their respective clubs, but not really grabbing hold of this number nine job for the U.S. And let's go through some of the candidates that we've seen over the last few months that people would like to see some combination of in Qatar. There's Ricardo Pepe, who broke out as a teenager during World Cup qualifying, then went through a huge year-long slump after moving to Germany with Augsburg, and seems reinvigorated after a lone move to Groningen in Holland. He's got five goals in his first six games in Holland, and seems to really be in a good place going into the World Cup. Jordan Pifok, a striker who played a role for the U.S. at Nations League, made a move to Union Berlin in the German Bundesliga, Also had a strong start scoring goals, assisting goals as Union has made a surprising run to the top of the table. And he's a candidate as well. Bigger striker who can add something on set pieces, more of a target striker as well. Josh Sargent, who's been a part of the U.S. since that 2018 transition, has been able to fight his way back into the picture, having good form at Norwich, and certainly is a striker who I think fits kind of the skill set that Greg Berhalter has talked about with the strikers. He can drop in and combine a little bit. He's very good in the box. He's a physical striker. And then there seems to be the favorite for Greg Berhalter, and that's Jesus Ferreira, who seemed to have grabbed hold of the starting job in June, and, and Berhalter's kind of looked to him in these last months of preparation for the World Cup. Jesus Ferreira had 18 goals and six assists for FC Dallas. A former midfielder converted to striker, 
definitely likes to combine, drop in, play with uh, the ball at his feet, um, but hasn't really shown that he can score on the international level. When you talk about this number nine position again, it seems like there are a lot of young strikers who can contribute goals. I didn't even bring up Brandon Vasquez, who scored 18 goals for Cincinnati this year in MLS and, and never even got a sniff with Greg Berhalter's national team. But there are huge, huge question marks at this position for the U.S. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that nobody around the team feels very confident about this group heading into the World's Cup. When you stack it next to the other positions, it's striker and center back. They're, they're two main worry points. And those are unfortunate worry points to have in a team. Two very important positions. It's a better picture than it was a couple of months ago when these guys were not even scoring at their clubs. They are in better form in their leagues now, which is a good thing. But they're young. They're not really proven. They haven't been consistent. There are huge question marks. Do you trust any of these guys to go to Qatar and bury good chances? I think it's difficult to say yes, Sam, because... Simply put, none of them have. None of them have been able to show it on the international level yet, and we'll go into Qatar wondering if any of them will be able to emerge on such a big stage. And and Sam, before we move on from the U.S. team, I think we should talk about the questions around it from a big picture point of view. There are a lot of fans who aren't happy with Greg Berhalter and his quote-unquote system, who believe that he hasn't been able to maximize the talent on this team. I think there's a bit of tension between some of the things we've talked about in previous episodes, the talent of this team versus the potential of it, what people think they can be versus what they are right now, and how you view their performances through that lens. But certainly, we've also seen Greg Berhalter change things and tweak things and try to find the right way to get the best out of this team. And I'm not sure that we've seen it, certainly not consistently. And so that will be the question going into Qatar. Will the 4-3-3 that Greg Berhalter plays get Christian Pulisic into places where he can be a playmaker, find ways to produce goals as they haven't in the months leading into the tournament? And I'm not sure there's a clear answer right now around this U.S. team, certainly not coming off of two bad performances in the September window. Well, there isn't a clear answer, but for me, I think it's clear that he needs to change the way the midfield plays and drop Musa next to Adams to help assist and build up. I think the general idea of trying to play in transition is a good one, but I think Burhalter has been a little bit trapped by his own words and his own ideas and his own preferences, not just about trying to change the way the world sees American soccer and doing part of that through playing quote unquote good soccer but also through his own past. He likes to keep the ball on the ground. He likes to have teams that play possession. And I think sometimes he's caught in between that desire, which is really, I think, deep-seated and ingrained in who he is as a coach versus the best way to use this team, which is more, let's press, let's win the ball in midfield, let's get it to our wingers, and let's go. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out a little bit, particularly in those games against Wales and Iran, where the U.S. figures to have a lot of the ball. Paul. Let's take it back a little bit more. We just took it a little big picture. Let's take an even bigger picture. The money question. Do you think the U.S. get out of the group in Qatar? I think it comes down to that first game against Wales. And I really think it's a one goal swing that determines the World Cup for this U.S. team. I think they will get a result against Wales, whether it's a draw or a win. And because of that, I do think the U.S. emerges from the group. But it's going to be a slog. I think there are going to be two very difficult games against the two teams that they're fighting for for that second place spot, in my opinion, in Wales and against Iran. But yeah, I have them advancing from the group in second place. I think a draw against Wales would almost eliminate them. I think that would give Wales a huge bump going into their second game against Iran. I don't like that position for the U.S. I don't think it'll happen, though. I think they're going to win that first game, and I think they'll make it out of the group. 
Well, Sam, we know that there is plenty of debate around this team and certainly questions about how far they can go, but there is belief within the group that they can make an impact in Qatar. Gio Reyna and Weston McKinney talked to us about the strength of the team and why they think that will emerge in November to help them push through the group. I think you see we really work for each other on the field. We really trust each other. I think our biggest strength is our is our chemistry, honestly. You know, we really love each other. I think it's if you maybe don't like someone as much, maybe you won't make, make the extra run for them or maybe you won't do the extra mile for them. But if you see someone you, you truly have a connection with and have a chemistry with and love them in a way, it's yeah, you do wanna wanna make sure that you're successful together and having success together is I guess the ultimate goal. Our biggest strength is just our, our brotherhood that we have to be able to stick up for one another. When one person, you know, gets pushed, the whole the whole crew comes through. So it's uh it's one of those one of those things that we've all known each other for so long. We've always played against each other growing up or played with each other. And some of us have even lived together. That's one of the things that helps us out a lot. We don't really let the egos come into into our into our camp here. We all kind of put them aside and kind of just enjoy the time together on and off the field. That idea of chemistry and brotherhood is giving the U.S. a really, I think, aggressive approach heading into Qatar. These guys are not short on confidence. They're not short on belief. And they're going to go out there with a front foot posture in these matches. Here's Tyler Adams and McKenney talking about their mentality entering the tournament. You can expect that we're going to go after it by all means. We, we talk about it as, as a team and... We're not we're not going into this tournament saying we're the most talented team. You know, that's it's just not the truth. You have you have the Frances, you have the Brazils, you have a lot of teams that are probably more talented. But how can we be the best team going into to the tournament, um, the most cohesive team, you know, one through 26, all on the same page, understanding their roles when they have to come into the game? How can they have an influence both individually and collectively? I think that's that's what's going to win us games. At the end of the day, we we have one mission is to go to the World Cup and and compete and to win that's what we're we're looking forward to doing those answers are a bit indicative of the type of bravado that comes with youth it's what burr talked about with beasley and donovan on that 2002 squad earlier in this podcast those two didn't know enough to be scared in korea to be intimidated and that brought a level of energy to that otherwise veteran squad this U.S. team will be full of that young bravado in Qatar, and Berhalter hopes it can have a similar impact, even though the makeup of the team is much, much different than that 2002 squad. His hope is that maybe that youthful intrepidness can be a strength for the U.S. Well, I think what, what I've learned from that is when you don't have fear, you're much more dangerous. You know, that was Landon DeMarcus in, in 2002. And, you know, if we can get our group to play without fear, you know, we'll be, we'll be dangerous. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stasekel. Thanks so much for listening to From Kuva to Qatar, Remaking the U.S. Men's National Team. Paul and I will both be on the ground in Qatar, covering the USMNT's entire run at the World Cup. We'll of course have plenty of written stories chronicling the Americans' run before, during, and after the competition, as well as tons of audio content about the US, Mexico, Canada, all the other participating countries here on the Athletic Soccer Show podcast feed. Be sure to check it all out, and thanks again for listening.
The producer of From Kuva to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team, is Michael Zimmerman. The executive producers are John Hayes and Mike Smeltz. The creators of the series are Paul Tenorio and Sam Stasekel. Special thanks to Chris Camrani for behind-the-scenes bonus episodes. Become a subscriber of The Athletic or become a member of The Athletic's Audio Plus subscription service on Apple Podcasts. And for much more about the U.S. men's national team and the rest of the teams at the World Cup this year, keep it right here on The Athletic Soccer Show.